2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back. This is New Books in Geography podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Siegel, coming to you from the shadows of the Rocky Mountains, and I'm the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Matthew Edney about his new book, Cartography: The Ideal and Its History. The book is published by the University of Chicago Press, and it just came out in. 2019. Let me welcome Matthew to the podcast. Welcome, Matthew.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Let's start, uh, if we can, um, by talking a little bit about how you came to be interested in geography and cartography.
1: Well, I was always um, good at geography in my British high school, and I've always loved maps. So I ended up doing a degree in geography at University College London which had, among other things, uh, a lot of courses in surveying. And when I turned up there, I discovered that they also had courses in a thing called historical geography. Um, Having had history killed for me at high school by a real nasty teacher, um, I lashed onto these things. And so my advisors didn't know what to do with me. But in my last year, um, I read a book chapter by Brian Harley which revealed to me the fact that, oh, there's a thing called the history of cartography, and maybe this is how I can unify the two sides of my of my interests. Um, my undergraduate advisor uh, mentioned to me David Woodward at the University of Wisconsin who turned out to have money. And so the next thing I know, um, in 1983, I'm newly enrolled grad student at uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison working for the project.
2: And I remember when I was a graduate student beginning and reading your books about um, India and the history of the British Empire, is there a way that you moved from studying the British Empire and, and the history of India into this larger project or the series of larger projects on 18th and 19th century cartography.
1: Um, I don't think I've ever given up my interest in surveying. Um, that's what when, when when I began graduate school, I was I, I focused on um, histories of surveying and institutional. <laughs> History is whether my master's degree on um, late 19th century U.S. federal government surveys or my Ph.D. on the British surveys in India. Um, But There's always a sense in surveying that it's about a process. And uh, as I developed um, that work and after I got my degree, I started thinking in terms of the differences between what are often lumped together as sort of two flavours of cartography: surveying and mapping. You know, the lower resolution mapping, higher resolution uh, surveys. And I started developing some ideas in the third in the nineteen nineties about um, that about the way in which cartography is really split among quite a few discrete uh, what I call modes of cartography, um, such that. Somebody working in geography and geographical mapping uh, really has nothing in common institutionally in terms of knowledge constructs, ideas of space, with somebody working in in, in a property mapper, let's say, surveying property boundaries um, and the other extreme. So you can start to see that there are these discrete discrete groups of people, uh, groups of mapping, ways of understanding the world. Um, and the practices that they engender to map them, so that you end up with quite distinct modes, um, and that sort of stuck with me. And as I've worked through, and as, as my as my span of interest has gotten bigger, as I've tried to think about um, how to tell the history of cartography over time uh, without succumbing to some simplistic ideas of progress. Um, I found it best to think always about the discrete mode, so when I was writing about uh, mapping in the British Atlantic, for example um, for one of these big uh, handbooks, um, it was best to do it in terms of marine mapping as one kind of mapping, regional mapping as another um, and property mapping as a third and so and keeping them quite distinct allowed me to make a more sophisticated argument than uh would otherwise have been the case, and so this is very much what um ends up informing uh the current project um,
2: yes and 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 I think if I can ask you a little bit about these modes and the ideal as you describe it, in the history of cartography. One of the fascinating points that I think you make about the idea of historical geography or the history of maps and mapping is a fundamental argument, which I see in many respects as a warning. Um, First, as a warning against progress, that there is a cartography without progress. That needs to be described and second one of your biggest arguments in the book which i'd ask you to explain a little bit more is the processual approach the processual approach to map studies in which you say that nothing about cartography can be taken for granted um, so what is this processual approach that you describe
1: okay um, well let me let me Back up a bit and do a bit of personal autobiography, um, which com- comes into electrobiography. So the initial idea, when in 1993 I wrote this article called, uh, called Cartography Without Progress, the idea then in my head was that cartographic modes are um, distinct, not very many, and are relatively uh, predictable and explanatory. Um, They can be used to explain things. But as my work has has developed and as I've thought about this more and more, modes are actually a pretty crude way of cutting apart um, the different kinds of mapping that that, um, are undertaken. Um, They're really just a heuristic. It's like class or what have you. I mean, they, they, they allow us to talk about different kinds of mapping, but in and of themselves they don't really have any explanatory prop- power they don't tell us anything about how history has evolved uh mapping has evolved and developed over time so i realized um being a good fukodian um that really what we've got is lots and lots and lots and lots i mean I don't know, infinite number of spatial discourses in which people are coming together, maybe literally just one or two people, three people, maybe much larger indiscriminate networks of print in the, in the more modern age. Um, but there are spatial discourses in which people are trying to uh, understand and communicate about spatial complexities. Um, I should say I use spatial complexity as a, sh- as a shorthand um, simply because if spatial relationships aren't complex, there's no need to communicate them. Uh, so there's no need to try to represent those uh, relationships in some kind of way. Um, and so from the, from the ground up, you can discern if you are very, you can do it easily. Present is very hard to do it. Historically, because you need to find the evidence for it, uh, but you can certainly identify uh, particular precise spatial discourses, and then you can look at the kinds of strategies that those discourses support for representing spatial complexity. Whether we're talking about uh, installations built into the environment, verbal maps. Um, various forms of graphics, numbers, and so on. Um, these are all different strategies that are used in different ways within different discourses. Um, so, one example of this I've, I've unearthed um, in the early 19th century, there was a move in the city of Portland, Maine, to map the city, not for engineering purposes, not for uh, navigational purposes, but really for for the purpose of creating a sense of identity, a sense of place, for a city that was under a great deal of change for several decades, um, and in this particular process, there was a, a, a maps were being produced, urban maps of the city, uh, locally for local consumption, and they and they rapidly developed and sustained a very particular set of conventions. Um, the center of, of the, old, the old part of Portland um, is on a peninsula, and so this peninsula actually runs northeast-southwest. Very, very quickly, I mean almost immediately, the peninsula was mapped as running across the page, and you know, to maximize space, and so there's a compass rose of some sort placed in the river, um, in the harbor, and then. Also in the harbor um, is the list of places mentioned on the map, because these are relatively small. Uh, and this format, this sort of internal, local, utterly local set of conventions, persists through the 1830s, 1840s, until uh, a group of, of Philadelphia-based publishers start to uh, produce local maps, again for local consumption, but they're doing it in larger numbers with um, on bigger presses and larger wall maps that are being, uh, so the mapping itself, the map production work is being done in Philadelphia. Um, so these Philadelphia-based map makers are trying to make maps of interest to the locality, of interest to local people. And they do have a lot of local identity forming uh, features. And they, I mean, not least of which is their large wall maps in the 1850s stuck on the walls to say, hey, this is my city. Um, right. But the kicker is that in, in this shift, the Philadelphia um, merchants, uh, map makers, start to use. Newly professionalized civil engineers, and they start to follow what they think maps should be like. And so, one of those criteria for both civil engineers uh, and for these map makers is that north should be at the top of the page. And so, the peninsula angles up, which requires a much larger sheet of paper and a lot of white space. Um, and they try to show the footprints of buildings in a good engineering way, uh so the list of um churches and schools and courthouses and all the rest of the things that show the morality and the civility of this town disappear from a legend and get sort of integrated into the map in a very difficult way to to read the character of the city from so just in that period from about eighteen fifteen to 1851 in particular, um, there's a very particular spatial discourse that the pretty well-off people within Portland are engaging in, um, in a very small environment, in a very particular way. It's really hard to find that kind of uh, spatial discourse uh, and to delineate it with any With with ease, Um, what are easier to find are what I think of now as threads of discourse. So, for example, um, roadmaps, roadmapping is broadly a sort of a regional mapping of space, but with a very particular purpose. Um, And so, you've got different kinds of roadmaps being produced at different times in different communities, different. Systems, depending on on how um, the economy is functioning and how society is functioning and technologically is going. So, um, and then you can start seeing how these various threads of discourse sort of combine into these larger modes. So the mode becomes a uh, a, a heuristic, Um, but the real level of study is at this discursive level, whether at the individual discourse at the larger threads of discourse, which we discern much more easily, certainly historically. And this is where uh, process comes in, because what these discourses are doing is within each of these discourses, threads, you've got the production and the consumption. In between, you've got the circulation of maps. So mapping processes, production, circulation, and consumption, all have to be studied equally to understand the shape of these various discourses and threads of discourse. And this is different from older forms of map history. You know, traditional or sort of pre-1980 forms are very much emphasizing, uh, production, how maps are made. The big change in sociocultural cultural work was after 1980 was to bring more, much more attention If not entire attention, on consumption. How do people interpret these maps? Um, What a processual approach does is say production's important, consumption's important, and in between, circulation is as important as the other two.
2: Yes. And, And I think that in mentioning the point about circulation, I'd actually really like to ask you more about cartography's ideal, and I think the example that you provide of the community of Portland and the producers in Philadelphia is is perfect um, for explaining this. I've noticed um, in doing my own work on Imperial Russia and on Central and Eastern Europe, that there has been among what you call the sociocultural intellectual whack-a-mole people Um, who have really focused on the consumption side that there's a real hesitation to focus on biography. There's a real hesitation, I think, to even get get rid of the ideal of cartography itself. So I, I wondered if I could talk to you a little bit um, for our listeners about the whole what is a map question and and how that might be A misleading question from the start. If if you're um, examining all of these modes and all of these actors at once,
1: sure. So ever since the word cartography was coined in the early 19th century, um, it's been understood to mean, you know, the entire endeavor of map making. So when academics, starting really in the 60s, began to uh, really wonder, okay, so what is a map? Uh, well, what, what is the nature of this new newly forming discipline called academic cartography? Um, the way that they thought, well, we can define cartography is by defining what a map is, because cartography is just map making. So what are these maps that we make? How does that then shape our field and define our field, if not legitimate us as academics? And ever since then, the arguments, the debates within cartography and about cartography, almost immediately, as soon as somebody starts talking about this is this is field called cartography, the debate immediately flips to well, what's a map? Um, And what nobody has realised, not even me until I finally got it into my head working on this book, is that nobody's actually said. Um, why should we nobody's asked why is it that we think that there is a category of things, of phenomena that we can unambiguously say this is a map that is not a map Um, admittedly some people have a bit of ambiguity in there but um, we have this sense every time we talk about maps do things we talk about the map we have this sense there is a single category of phenomena that Everyone can agree upon our maps. The question is, has become, especially for social cultural students of maps, uh, how do we define these maps as cultural documents, as social instruments, in such a way that we can maintain this comprehensive category of of phenomena? Um, And what I would argue is now is that belief in this single and unambiguous category is actually an aspect of an idealization that is cartography. Um, cartography, the word cartography was coined uh, in particular by a Danish expatriate in Paris, Conrad Malbrun, who was trying a new word for a new understanding of mapping that comes out of the 18th century. Particularly in the work of the French, um, that seemed to hold promise as being sort of a universal form of mapping. Um, You've heard, I'm sure, of the uh, 18th century French uh, Cassini map of France or the Carte de France. When uh, Cassini III first printed these maps in about 1760, both sheets, he called these maps. the individual sheets forming the, the general and particular map of France. That's right. I won't yes. throw out my execrable French accent. Um, that's to say, they are, they are once very particular, focused on details of a landscape. But at the same time, it's a general map, is covering a huge region. And because it has this triangulation framework, uh, so everything is fixed very nicely, you can theoretically use this framework as the basis for coastal mapping and then with uh new technologies, uh you can do inshore hydrographic work very easily. And you can use this framework as the basis for cadastral taxation mapping and navigation engineering mapping for building roads and military mapping. Plus general touristic, travelling, needs. There's a sense when when Mount Brun first uses the word, and as, the, as the, the, this concept of mapping of, of cartography develops, that people think that if only we can implement it, if only we have the money and the staffing and the skill sets to actually implement it, we could have a single survey that meets all needs. Uh, the needs of the public, the needs of government, the needs of all the different parts of the government, Uh, mariners, landlubbers, everybody. And that's what in the 1820s gets picked up as cartography. It's very much as ideal of of sort of a vision, an aspirational vision of what mapping should be, especially after became very apparent that the 18th century claims to a universal mapping technique, which is fit everything within natural longitude frameworks by geographers, very, very quickly in the early 19th century became exposed as, as not really working for the more detailed military-based surveys that European states were doing Europe European empires. So this concept of cartography develops. Um first from the systematic surveys and then through a whole series of uh, various factors through the 19th century, uh, each of which either reinforces existing points or creates new points, new preconceptions, new convictions about the way maps should be. So the systematic territorial survey come sort of influences of what we can call an ontological preconception, that maps are properly properly statements of fact, and the idea of observation or going out into the landscape and drawing the hills, in a planimetric view, um, underpins concepts that maps are pictures, allow you to see things, especially when balloons and, and the like panoramas come into use. Mm, uh, yes. By the end of the century, as people are engaging in mass mobility for the first time with bicycles, and with cars, very, very early automobiles, there develops this sense that all maps are about navigation, about guiding people as they move through space. All of these different preconceptions um, stem from practice, they stem from how people have made and used and circulated maps, um, not from a logical process. And so we have this undeniable fact that some of these things are contradictory, um, but it doesn't matter. So when sociocultural uh, scholars when, when when a sociocultural approach developed in the late seventies, eighties, nineties, people scholars were worried about the idea of a map as simply being a statement of fact, an objective statement. Um, and they were trying to critique that and and point out, no, there's cultural meanings associated with and that, they're, and they're done to sustain power and power relations. Um, they start knocking down inadvertently some of the preconceptions of the ideal of cartography, but other ones survive. So, uh, in the book I quote uh, a recent instance where a couple of very our respected established scholars say, no, we reject the idea that maps are pictures. Great. That's a pictorial preconception kicked out the window. And then he immediately turned around and said, maps are propositions about location, which just brings up the ontological preconception uh, once again. So this is what I, this is what I call the, the intellectual whack-a-mole uh, process of sociocultural critique because the socio cultural critique has, been, has addressed the map or the concept is this this uh, this mythical thing called the map, rather than this body of belief, this hegemonic belief system that is the ideal of cartography, they keep we've kept on and I say we because I've been very much part of this myself we've uh turned over some of the uh basic tenets of the ideal. Only to fall foul of some of the other ones. It's been very hard to get away because nobody's understood that cartography doesn't actually exist. Um, I stole from Stephen Schaeffer a phrase uh, for my epigraph at chapter one there's no such thing as cartography, and this is a book about it. Cartography is, for Baudrillard, is a, is a simulacrum. It's the image, not of a, uh, is an image that doesn't hide truth is an image that hides the fact that there is no truth. And the simulacrum is a product of historical forces. It has evolved, uh, it has developed in the 19th, 20th century because of certain social cultural trends. And I could go on about this stuff, the cow's come home, but you should read the book.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Yes, I I think everybody should read the book as a place to start. Um, And and I would add to this, because uh, in reading some of the works that have come out by um, Dennis Wood and John Fells and John Pickles, and of course, Mark Monbonnier, um, really from the 80s and 90s, I, I do see you bringing up many of the older arguments but advancing many of the newer arguments to bring geography closer to history and as a historian and not as a geographer i wonder if we might talk a little bit about the dark side of cartography and and the dark side of empire and, and i don't just mean just postmodernism or poststructuralist critique or even postcolonial studies but is there some way we can begin as, as historians and geographers, and as you once put it to me, refugees from GIS, um, to try and incorporate the insights and the contributions of, of these schools of thought? Uh, I do see you pushing pushing the field, if we can call it that, um, closer to spatial discourse studies, and, and maybe closer to um, Baudrillard's understanding of, of Simulacrum, um, I myself end up leaning closer toward graphic designers and, and artists and surrealists um, rather than the old world of positivist-oriented topographers and engineers and surveyors. But I guess my question would, would be, um, where where are you pushing historians of of geography and cartography toward if we've lost the ideal and and we've lost this, as you say, a kind of isolationist understanding of cartography and the map itself?
1: Good question. Um, In large part, uh, I'm reacting to a very negative attitude towards maps and cartography that evolved um in the sixties and seventies. This is what Martin Bruckner once called the Maps are bad syndrome. Um, and it's something that Brian highly pushed. It's implicit in all sorts of approaches. Um, because and the critique has been is is, is valid to the extent that uh, it is a critique of the intellectual underpinnings of cartography is invalid in that it thinks that these are uh, uh, completely implemented. So the, one of the complaints um, is that cartography is utterly sexist, is utterly racist, um, and it sustains sort of Western imperial ideologies, which is, on the face of it, absolutely the case. Um, the ideal cartography, one of its preconceptions, the individualistic. Uh, preconception, holds for reasons that I really don't know why anybody believed in the first place, but they did. That the that the cognitive neurological knowledge that we have in our, in our individual heads, um, that some people misleadingly call the cognitive map, because it's not really a map, is somehow directly expressed. In graphic form, that what a cartographer does is take his or her most his knowledge of the world and present it in a graphic format. And this has led to um, a, a great deal of, frankly, I think, misleading. I mean, it's a huge amount of work is utterly wrong. I would say uh, that Westerners think in rational way. This goes back to all the Errors within Piaget's cognitive psychology, um, in which he used imperial ethnographic work as a way to uh, justify that these primitive childlike, I'm using square quotes, scare quotes, childlike peoples are thinking about space topologically, whereas our Western youth, as they get to adulthood, think rationally, think in terms of a geometric, uh, ordered, gridded, gridded space. Um, which means that anybody who thinks topologically, who draws a map topologically, which is how anybody would draw a map if you're trying to tell a friend how to get from where you are to where the party is. Um, Anybody who draws a topological map must therefore be not as in- cognitively developed as those of us in the West. And so men, uh, get white men get promoted to a, to a higher rank and the, the indigenous other gets demoted to some kind of childlike state. And in between, women occupy this strange liminal position where they're sort of they're able, because they're intuitive, not rational, again, scare quotes, um, they can interact with the native, but at the same time, they're from Western civilization, so they've got some sense of rationality. There's this is huge body of, of absolute rot uh, built up around these kinds of concepts that underpins the idea that cartography is, well, the mapping is necessarily sexist, racist. So on. Cartography in the ideal, the way in which people have deployed the idea of cartography to sustain what Western legitimization of empire, uh to sustain the sort of power relationships between ethnic groups within Western society. Those are part of this mythic practice, this concept of cartography, not how people actually make maps. So what I want to see is by people looking not at at mapping through the lens, this flawed, distorted lens of cartography, but to look at mapping practices, processes, what exactly are people doing, then what happens is that the role of the mapmaker as the great producer of knowledge Evaporates. You know, one of the, one of the, 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 the issues, um, that you see, Dennis Cosgrove wrote about it. Uh, Gillian Rose has done this too. I mean, these are both, you know, incredibly great thinkers and writers. But, you know, Cosgrove says, you know, there's a pre-map period of analysis and there's the post-map period of analysis. There's somehow there's a body of, uh, Pre- of, of creation of the map and somehow that is then fixed the moment the map is physically made and then the map is used and Jillian Rose said the same thing in, um, in terms of images generally sort of the, the, the pre-image, the image, and the post-image um, practices but if you think about circulation maps are circulating within discourses, maps that themselves are one of the things that are circulating, not the knowledge in the map, but the maps themselves. And they're circulating between producers and consumers. Everybody within that discourse is using the same semiotic system um, that's appropriate to that discourse. Um, One of the things that actually led me in this whole direction was a very simple throwaway statement by uh, an historian of the English language, Michael Jeremy Smith, who said that the users of a system, of a linguistic system, blah, 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 and by users of of a linguistic system, he meant the speakers, the listeners, the writers, the readers, everybody who partakes in the linguistic system. It's not that we've got map makers on one side and map users on the other side. Is that within the shape, within the scope of these little, dis, little precise discourses, producers and consumers are all are taking in the same semiotic system. So it's not that the map maker defines the meaning of a map. It's more that that map meanings are created through this uh, circulation of imagery and their consumption of imagery within very particular historical circumstances, which is very much in line with the kinds of arguments that Martin Dodge, um, Chris Perkins, and um, Rob Kitchen have been arguing about um, in terms of the idea that, you know, fundamentally from a postmodern point of view, reading is, meaning in a, in a text is created by the reader, not the producer. So how do we understand the reading purely idiosyncratic from readings that are um, more culturally valid? Well, that's the question for tracing through discourses, for looking at um, the ways in which maps circulate so you can start to figure out the kinds of people, men, women, whites, blacks, rich, poor, whatever kind of axes you're going to use, which kinds of people are... uh, Interpreting maps and what kind of conditions and what kind of uh, results generate from that um, as these things are circulating around. So what I'm pushing for is, in effect, a complete disintegration of the idea of cartography. Not only should we not talk about cartography, we should not even use the word. Um, but more particularly, the, we need to ditch all the concepts of universality that come from this mythic ideal, and instead get down in the weeds, and this is where my historical side comes out, and look at the evidence. How are people actually using maps in these kind of contexts, in particular times, and how are these maps circulating around, combining Connecting producers and consumers uh, within the same linguistic, semiotic system. And if you do that, then you can start to do work that's starting to be done, certainly uh, in history, that is looking at the role of spatial knowledge in historical processes. And there's two great books that come to mind immediately. Uh, one is Jeffers Lennox's book on colonial Nova Scotia, where he starts out with this whole pro- with this whole concept of of realization, I should say, that Nova Scotia is a 19th century creation, the the limits and extent, and the way that the history of Nova Scotia had been written um, has always been as a this. Sterile container for events as landscape, what book article Imperial History. Um, so, what he did is to start figuring through both written maps, written memoranda, what we know about oral histories, to understand the different sets of knowledge and concepts of the peninsula and the neighboring mainland held by not just the English in Nova Scotia and the Mi'kmaq peoples and French Acadians, but also by other Wabanakis who are, relatively hostile to the Mi'kmaq, the cosmopolitan French in Paris, the less cosmopolitan but still bureaucratic French in Quebec, and the English in Boston and the English in London. All of these different groups have differing sets of spatial understandings. This territory, and you can retell a much more sophisticated history of the colonial development of Nova Scotia in the conflict between the three sets of people on the ground: the Indians, the English, and the French, uh, by understanding more of the processes by how information circulated in various forms. The other book uh, is. and I'm blanking, this is really embarrassing, I'm blanking on his name. His last name is Map. Uh, he's a William & Mary. wrote a great book on the American West where he's, again, looking at people's understandings of space through um, various discourses at various discursive levels in order to, to, to retell the history of the early expansion of the American West. You might also add to that David Bernstein's re- recent book, How the West Was Drawn, where He's they're trying to understand white Plains Indian relationships and the events of dispossession of the Sioux, um, Pawnee, in particular the Iowa, through their, their spatial interactions, as it were. The result is what Paul Carter, back in '87, called spatial history. Um, rather than treating landscape as being the empty stage on which history unfolds, um, the territory itself is a concept that's part of history, and it also unfolds with the events of history, and has a significant impact on those events. So, my vision, then, is really to promote an understanding um, that is empirically sound, that does open spaces for um, previously cartographically disadvantaged peoples women minorities in particular um, and to both to recover their work so it 's no longer obscure, but at the same time to contextualize the work of state agencies um, in in the mapping of knows how many different aspects of territory.
2: Does that make sense? And and I think, uh, actually, if I can add a couple of things to this, because one of the most fascinating parts I found about your book was your checklist of wrong convictions. I I, I actually really love this um, in the middle of Chapter 3, because I I think, um, and I'll just read some of them, you mentioned, Ontology, the map is a reduction of the world or archive. Pictorialness, the map is an unmediated, graphic, mimetic presentation of the world. Individuality, you also touch upon this in, in, um, in our talk. Making maps and using maps are acts solely of individual cognition. Um, and you mentioned Piaget as well. Um, materiality, maps are things made at a specific moment observation, especially with this default of topography and relief and landscape, that all maps are grounded in observation and measurement. Um, I I wondered if I could just ask you a little bit about this word convictions that you use. You've mentioned practices and, and understanding the marginalized communities and, and wanting to, wanting to know more about their systems of spatial discourse. But, but what do you mean by convictions or, or moreover wrong convictions? You're, you're insisting on, on something there that's normative. What is it?
1: Right. So it's actually very straightforward. Um, I started identifying these big, broad, um, preconceptions when I was trying to figure out why everybody uh, who's written about John Smith's, you know, he of Pocahontas fame, John Smith's map of New England, Boise in New England, 1614, um, how everybody who wrote about it for 200 years got the story wrong, even completely contradicting the reliable empirical evidence, and there's not much of it, um, even if it says X, and every historian says not X. It's quite amazing. Um and so I developed this I began to see these these larger preconceptions, um, which really again they're they're heuristic in the sense that these seem to be principles that um everybody subscribed to in the sense of because this is this is the ideal through all these shape from all these different preconceptions. But the convictions, uh, are simply just sort of subparts, uh, very particular concepts that come from the larger preconceptions or even from, from combinations of preconceptions. Um, so, for example, under pictorialness, the, the, the way that a map is a, is a, seems to be a particular kind of picture, um, Requires several convictions or, or, or engenders several convictions that maps are graphic images, um, whereas maps can be verbal, they can be tectonic, you know, built into the environment, numeric, what have you. And then there are combinations thereof. Um, and that another another conviction stemming from the pictorialness is that cartography has its own distinctive special language. Over the last 120 years or so, people have been writing about the cartographic language as being somehow distinct from other semiotic systems when in reality the, the maps are extrusions, extensions of uh, their particular discourses. So a conviction in this sense is simply of a, a, a particular point that gets repeated um, over the last certainly the last hundred years even not the last 200 years. Uh, depending on the degree of the evolution of of the ideal, Um, and is still very commonly expressed in a wide array of literature, academic and and popular. Um, The checklist itself is there because I realized that a lot of these convictions might get lost in the diatribe that is Chapter 3.
2: Diatribe is a good word.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yes. it's it's a rant. I must admit, um, but in many respects, the whole book is a rant. Uh, I've tried not to be um, ad hominem in any, in any particular location, and I've also ensured that you know when I when I see errors in my own work, um, that I've noted those as well.
2: Yeah, and and I actually. I want to say, illuminating diatribe, because I I remember reading um, all of the satirists. The people, especially in writing map books, tend to quote um, anecdotally from Jonathan Swift or Mark Twain or Lewis Carroll or um, or Borges. Um, but I, I get kind of irritated because I I then keep seeing those same quotes over and over again. And I, I, like you, in many ways, I feel the inclination to, to rant, to see people actually begin to develop more of a sustained critique from the humor and the oddity and the throwaway quotes and phrases. So, I, I, if I may ask you, as this as a kind of a last question, um, is there a counter hegemonic or maybe a citizen based? way, not an ideal, but perhaps a set of practices out of the degenerate ideal of cartography? And and what would that be
1: well, I don't think to begin with that the, the satires themselves are necessarily counter hegemonic. Um, certainly you no know, Lewis Carroll with the whole idea of a map of one to one which hasn't been used yet because farmers objected said it would shut out all the sun. Um, those are really playing with contradictions between preconceptions. Um, so the the their in, the indications, their existence are indications that a white community of the public, are, have some understanding at least of the preconceptions of the ideal that maps are supposed to be accurate, definitive statements, that they're used for. Navigation, so on. Um, Having said that, I think it's really a question of dispelling concepts of um, cartography and everything that stems from it Uh, and focusing more on mapping as the process by which groups of people come together and talk about, negotiate over. Uh, matters of spatial concern. The, in a sense, uh, you know, even though um I don't say that mapping is uh, sexist cartography is sexist, cartography is imperialistic, and so on. Um Mapping, actual individual mapping activities are not necessarily, they can be, but they're not necessarily sexist, racist, imperialistic, what have you. Um, so in a way, I'm sort of arguing for an extended feminist approach to mapping in the sense that uh, in feminism, it's asking for equal rights for everybody. Um, uh, you know, social inequalities, uh, whether they're economic gender what have you need to be uh, eliminated or at least ameliorated, and I think the same kind of thing can be done in everyday mapping activities I mean this is what the critical cartography movement and critical GIS movements are all about uh, today in terms of ensuring that um, locals are involved in an urban GIS and the decisions that come from it, the counter mapping practices of trying to integrate indigenous knowledges into a modern GIS or a modern map that can then be understood by remote decision makers and acted upon as a valid body of knowledge because it's presented in a very modern, formal right. kind of way. Right. Um, and to teach indigenous peoples modern mapping technologies so that they can interact on their terms more equally with bureaucratic uh, central administration. So I think it's, it's a question of practice. It's nothing about the mapping per se that is going to promote a feminist point of view other than just sort of making quite sure that as many stakeholders as possible can be included in mapping practices as well.
2: And I think now that we've taken up um, a lot of your time, Matthew, I'll ask you our traditional question on new books in history and new books in geography. What are you working on now?
1: Well, um, cartography, the idea on this history, uh, is actually the first of three books that all came out of the same big practice, same big project. It just grew and grew and grew as I realised that the answers weren't quite as straightforward as I thought to be to begin with. Um, and so the next book is called uh, Mapping History Theory, um, and so it's partly uh, is it's a, histori- it's a it's an historiography of map history, um, looking at how there have been multiple historiographical unity as historiographical modes of map history that came together in the 60s and 70s and in large respect um, prompted the, the sociocultural critique of normative map. And then to trace through that critique and to reveal how, even as it's trying to dis, disabuse the concept of normative map, Nonetheless, the sociocultural critique has remained indebted to the idea of cartography within the particular context of, of uh, claims to write the history of cartography. Um, and that then leads up to the third book, eventually, uh, which will be called Mapping as a Process. Wow. <laughs> Just as a final plug, I should say, if you go to mappingasprocess.net, um, that's the blog where I'm trying to work on some of these ideas.
2: And uh, this is a blog that I follow avidly. So um, go to it, our listeners, read it. Um, you'll get a, a quick preview of uh, what Professor Matthew Edney is working on next. I want to thank him um, and um, his book. If we're talking about his book today, The book is called Cartography, the Ideal and Its History. It's by Matthew H. Edney, and it's published in 2019 by University of Chicago Press. I want to thank you, Matthew, for being on our show today.
1: Well, again, thank you for having me.